You are listening to a Science Actually production. We are made of star stuff. Well, you and I are made of star stuff. Kobe and Benjamin, however, are made of tiny sulfur bits that make rotten eggs smell the way they do. Trust me, it's science. So this, um, this rocket was commissioned by the factory for the employees to have a toy to show off to all of their friends who visited them and ask, what are you doing? And uh, you can say, well, I'm working on this and this. So this is where the people go or mm-hmm. the payloads. And it's got the beautiful um, part, the top of the feather. So you notice this feather here? Mm-hmm. This feather goes all the way around. Right. So it starts from here. Blue Origin Feather. The whole story about that was that the the inspiration, uh, something that is Earth, that is Earth-centric, is air, um, flying, birds, the way birds evolved on Earth. And if we went and met an alien civilization, a symbol of what it is to be from Earth would be a feather, because it's probably one of the finest hmm. examples of evolution, evolutionary engineering. And so that is the symbol of the company. And the motto is, um, we are of blue origin. So apparently because also the earth is mostly oh. water. So sort of the water and I the, had no and idea. the feather. Those are, I yeah. always thought, because I had heard, <laughs> uh, well, heard, I had, I, I had conversations with people who also love following uh, this a new period of space exploration that we're entering that the reason behind the blue origin feather is because when the capsule lands, it's supposed to be as float down and land as smooth as a feather. That was one of our biggest guesses. And now I know it's not right. This is even better. Ah, love it. I love it. I love the whole thing. I love the whole story. That's fantastic. It's a really cool rocket, but I reckon it has to be at least twice as big for humans yes. to fit inside that, that little compartment. A very so Zoolander this compartment thing. will fit six, six humans. So, um, so we can fit six small humans in here, and the seating is spectacular. And the seating is designed to collapse and buckle under each passenger if the if there's a failure of the thrust termination system, which is a series of jets that line the bottom of this ring, the ring being the um, interface ring to the top of the propulsion module. And those uh, jets uh, create a puff of air. So when you hit the ground, the puff of mm-hmm. air creates a tiny pillow of air, nitrogen, a tiny pillow of nitrogen that takes you from about 20 kilometers, 25 kilometers per hour to zero kilometers per hour in a very um, controlled manner. So it's a bump, but it's a, it's a, a soft bump, if you will, as much as you could make it with a pillow of nitrogen. So that's um, so damn cool. And there is an escape motor, which has helped us very much. Um, there's a 70,000 pound thrust escape mm-hmm. motor in the center of this. So here where the magnet would, which is not here, but is for this model. 
would be the uh, exhaust for the escape motor. And the escape motor is ducted. There are four um, small motors that control the thrust direction so that the escape motor can actually be sent in a specific direction away from the propulsion Mm -hmm. module if in there is some reason that the propulsion module is exploding, uh, which has occurred. And so in that case, um, we we would have a controlled escape with thrust vector control, thrust vector correction. So there's a lot of technology up there. Oh gosh, yes. There's, there's a lot, and it's it's really cool. I feel like we should <laughs> we were aiming to do like a very brief uh, continuation of the chat that we're having before we hit record, but I just realized the folks listening at home they've just heard uh, four minutes of fantastic rocket based discussion with no idea. Um, I'm going to move to a better internet. Additional. Uh, who this additional uh, uh, voices that they're hearing, and they are indeed hearing not only the dulcet tones of myself and Benjamin, but uh, this week um, we Our have very a guest, first guest joining us today. Yes, we have um, a very first guest joining us. Um, Demos Katz from uh, Blue Origin is here, and he's been telling us about um, the way that the um, crude module of the uh, Blue Origin uh, rocket works. Um, before we go any further, Dimas, would you like to to give Please. a bit of an intro to the folks listening at home? Um, in addition to that wonderful discussion of the rocket, uh, yes. So um, my name is Dimos. I studied electrical engineering in the United States at Virginia Polytechnic Institute, or otherwise known as Virginia Tech. I had a variety of sort of long and winding roads around alternative and hybrid vehicles, um, alternative energy, solar power. I built solar powered cars while I was in college and raced those. And so I've always been interested in getting out and uh, making the world a little different, a little better place, a little different in its transportation. Um, I also got a chance to work on hybrid electric buses with General Motors and worked at GE for a little while and then decided to just consult and kind of do my own thing. My love is um, solar power. I, I love solar power. I love uh, alternative energy. So rockets, not something I was particularly interested in throughout my career and really only came upon it because I needed a full-time job once I got married and I had a kid. And it would help if I didn't have to travel so much. And sure enough, here comes uh, Blue Origin. Perfect. I can get a nice, easy desk job designing electronics for the rocket and um, not have to worry about much else. But I found out that it was actually kind of interesting what they were doing. So um, here I am talking about it with great joy and uh, great enthusiasm. And part of that is there's a lot of energy right now in going back to the moon, going going to Mars. Um, different philosophies abound. Uh, and... So for me, my, my philosophy is, is we've got to make the world a, bit, a cleaner place, a better place. And so for me, alternative energy still, electric vehicles, it's always going to be my, my first love. But um, for, for this kind of stuff, definitely a place to push some of the technologies, especially in the electrical engineering, where we talk about reliability and all the stuff that, that you need to make a rocket come and go from space 25 times, supposed to be used 25 times. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that has to happen to make electronics survive the kinds of crazy environments, the cold, the heat, the vibration, the, the, the occasionally there's a hydrogen fire that, that, that starts under this thing after it lands because it's busy venting its gases. And sometimes it doesn't shut off the engine in time while it's venting hydrogen, which is sort of the last thing left in the tank. And then there'll be a hydrogen fire, but you can't see hydrogen uh, in the visual spectrum. So you can only see it when the infrared cameras are on and you see this massive fireball coming out of the bottom of the unit after it's landed. Um, I don't know if you've linked to any videos yet, but there's some lovely videos on the Blue Origin website as well as on YouTube showing the, um, the landing process for this rocket. And, um, and we can move forward on that. I don't want to uh, overload our podcast with my particular discussions here. So let's talk. Let's have some questions. I mean, like I, I, I kind of am at the point where I'm not overloaded. I feel like a kid in a candy store because I have my brain running in every direction at the same time. Um, and it's so fascinating how you ended up there. But I'm, I'm really curious, like, um, obviously, the main uh, aspect of, of renewability uh, comes from the fact that the rockets themselves are renewable. I mean, there's always that comparison that people make to um, commercial aviation where they say, well, if the plane just crashed every time you flew from New York to LA, like that would be super inefficient and terrible for the environment. So it's great um, that, you know, folks like uh, companies like uh, Blue Origin and SpaceX are working on the reusability of the rocket. But I'm curious, what sort of technologies are you implementing um, in order to, to, to make these components as reliable as possible to allow them to be used 25 times um, and to withstand those insane, you know, pressure and temperature conditions. Well, there's a couple of things that make the engine particularly susceptible to failure early on. And some of that involves the development of the metal alloys that um, are used to make the nozzle sustain uh, the cooling and heating. Um, a great analogy of um, what a rocket engine does is boiling a set. Imagine you made a cup out of ice cream and then you were tasked with boiling water in that cup made out of ice cream. <laughs> and that's essentially the, the, the thermal balance we're creating. One hmm. of the ways that you can boil that water in a cup made of ice cream would be to create a tiny ribbon of air that keeps the, the water in the cup from actually touching the ice cream. And so we, we, we inject a ribbon of um, unburned fuel that creates a slipstream around the, uh, the combustion, the, the, the controlled explosion. And that uh, protects the side walls. Hey, you. That protects the side walls. Um, I've got this stuffy here. From <laughs> the, another passenger. It protects the sidewalls of the rocket engine from destruction and melting. Um, and that is part of the design. The other is a stable combustion environment. And so a lot of research went into, and this was true with the Apollo program as well, back in the 50s and 60s when the F-1 engine was being developed for the Apollo rockets that took men to the moon. Um, that engine had a combustion chamber that... Um, would inject hydrogen and oxygen. In that case, I think that that engine burned kerosene 
this engine mm -hmm. burns hydrogen and oxygen. Um, but injecting those, and we call it an injector plate, and um, the, the point is to create this very, very clean mix of fuels and oxidizer, oxidizer just being oxygen, and then to um, make it so that the powerful force of this controlled explosion doesn't have tiny little resonances or noises. It's just one continuous, lovely tone that uh, pushes through the nozzle and creates this flow of heat and pressure that can push on the rocket up into space. Wow. If you're creating that protective layer to prevent the ice cream cup <laughs> from melting, but you create the protective layer with fuel, how does that yes. not ignite? So one of the things <laughs> that happens is, is fuel has a variety of temperatures of ignition. You can have a region where you're fuel rich and oxygen poor. In that place, the fuel isn't, doesn't get enough oxidizer to burn. And then you can have other regions where you're ox so oxygen rich and so fuel poor that the temperature of the oxygen never goes up fast enough for it to be considered a very powerful uh, burn. So you can either inject an excess amount of oxygen around the rings that comprise the various levels of this cup as it expands because we also have this expanded sort of it's kind of like a half dome if you look up into the nozzle of a rocket you'll see what sort of looks like a dome a parabola a paraboloid if you take a cross section it looks like a parabola on both sides mm -hmm. and that's to allow the, the fire to expand but to also allow the speed to increase as we go down remember we need to be pushing at around seven thousand. Uh, miles per hour. It, please excuse the American speed, but that's uh, essentially what we're talking about, escape velocity here. So we want to be pushing at escape velocity down so that we can get the rocket up and away from Earth's gravity, at least. Since this rocket follows a ballistic trajectory, we don't need speeds quite that high. So we're not going to try to break away from Earth's gravity. We're simply going to go up to about the car past the Kármán line around um, three or 400,000 feet it's roughly 100,000 uh, uh, meters of, of altitude and then just fall right back to Earth again. Um, so uh, with that, I think I just forgot your question. Oh, please. Uh, please. The question was, how does the fuel not ignite? But then you explain. Uh, yes. Well, yes. There's no oxidizer. <laughs> yes. So we either, we either have it. So we have regions of, of extremely fuel rich or extremely fuel poor. Um, mm -hmm. areas that we can control. So we can control the mixture and in the edges and, and that keeps, keeps that section cool. Super cool. Wow. I know the I'm entire just... idea. One of the primary things that you mentioned about Blue Origin and other uh, space companies is you want everything to be as reusable as possible. But what parts are not reusable? Um, there's uh, what's it called? Pad consumables, which is, oh, yeah. uh, I've heard Tori Bruno from United ULA. He mentioned yeah. pad consumables is the term re referring to all the things at the launch pad that just get destroyed when you launch a rocket. And those things have to be replaced. Um, and they're also, I would, I'm wondering what parts, how much of a blue origin launch site, which is not a huge site. It's like some scaffolding next to a, a rocket. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I've, well, I've had the pleasure of, 
So on. I've had the pleasure of walking around that the launch site, Lucky. and 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 what happens is is there's um, the things that are closest to the rocket are a set of uh, hydraulically operated clamps. And these clamps hold the rocket down to do something very interesting called the built-in test of the engine. So when we command, thru- command engine start, the engine goes from zero thrust to in about a half a second to full thrust. But we don't let go of the rocket. The reason is, is we're trying to make a measurement of the rocket's ability to lift off the pad prior to allowing the rocket to leave. Once we've achieved uh, the minimum thrust parameter and we're, we're otherwise what we call within the red lines, red lines being the, the allowable parameters of operation. Once we agree that, that the uh, engine is producing the appropriate amount of thrust, then the clamps let go. Now those clamps catch fire and, um, and stay and they're, they're still like a flaming inferno um, long after the rocket has finished its trip. But um, otherwise I that's about the only thing I've seen that might be consumables. And so there's some maintenance that has to occur, but the pads steel and yes, the steel gets very, very hot. Um, but otherwise the structure stays the same. Um, sometimes we, we paint the pad. So it looks real nice prior to the launch and the paint gets ripped off. Um, and we do have to do maintenance on the hydraulics that are around there. Um, other things are attached to the scaffolding. So, for example, the umbilical that provides the uh, fueling for the tanks. That will be removed and pulled back very quickly as the rocket uh, begins its ascent. And, in fact, those don't get pulled until the rocket begins its ascent. So it's sort of the rocket uh, thrust activated. So all of that... Um, so, but to, to answer more directly, we have very few things on the pad that get uh, damaged. We actually get more damage on the return back. So we have this huge um, uh, feather on the ground well, well away from the launch pad. And this has a guided descent, so it knows where it's going. It's going to go straight to where it needs to go. And mm-hmm. then once it gets close to the pad, it activates its engine at about 2,000 feet. So the engine um, is active, and the engine slows down the rocket. Now, the great news is we're not full of propellant anymore, so we have a lot less weight. And so the propellant is a consumable. And then as we approach the rocket, sort of the thrust vector correction on the uh, main engine activates to make sure the rocket comes to where it needs to come. And then then we finally uh, deploy the legs. Those legs are not deployed, but they're shown deployed in this model. Then we deploy the legs, and then the rocket touches down. But prior to touchdown, we'd say we're about 50 feet up above the ground, um, or about, I'd say, 20, 25, uh, I'd say 14 or 15 meters above the ground is when the legs are deployed. Then the rocket starts finding, and then it sort of drops at about five feet per second. And then it just, it just makes nice soft landing with little compression points here. Um, the rocket looks horrible. It's, it's charred, it's burnt, it's gotten hot from re-entry. We don't even paint it. Um, it just looks darker the next time we fly it. Than the previous. <laughs> it's like, basically like seasoning a cast iron pan, it, except with like, a giant rocket. Yeah, at the twenty fifth time, it's probably pretty dark. But um, but we but there will be a check out of the hydraulic systems, the 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 batteries. So this is this uses a battery powered hydraulic pump. And uh, so we charge the batteries. We verify the batteries are, are good. 
we um, check and see if there's any hydraulic leaks. Maybe we even change the hydraulic fluid. I'm not sure if the hydraulic fluid gets reused. My guess is it gets re it gets replaced. So, but those are about the only consumables. The this is a hydrolox engine, so hydrogen and oxygen. It's not the best choice for ISP. It's not the best fuel for doing what it does. But the goal was not to make this rocket just a tourism rocket. It was to make it a demonstration of technologies that could be used for launching a rocket from the moon. Because on the moon, when we mine regolith, we also have access to ice and we have the ability to do hydrolysis and to have uh, refueling capabilities for a rocket of this type. Incredible. Let's just uh, take a quick pause there and we'll be right back after this um, to hear more about the plans for in-situ uh, mining on the moon for, for rocket purposes. That'd be awesome. Get ready to unleash the chaos with Shock Diamond Cola, the drink that not only energizes, but propels you into a realm of extreme exhilaration. Break the sound barrier with your face as you crack open a can of Shock Diamond Cola. It's not your typical beverage. It's a taste that blasts through your face. Mach 10 point flavor. Testing the limits of what is still a legal amount of caffeine, this is the beverage for those who dare to defy the ordinary. We've thrown in some ingredients that are technically not toxic just to add a dash of danger to your day. That's not all. Hold on tight as some lucky drinkers of this beverage may experience a very special side effect. Your face will glow. That's right. It's not just a drink. It's a luminous adventure in a can that can make your skin glow. So when you're ready to break free from the mundane, grab the diamond. The shock diamond. Break the barriers. Break the rules and break your face with every sip you take. So, are you prepared to break the ordinary and soar into the extraordinary Shock Diamond Cola? Because when you want to blow your hair back, grab the diamond. <laughs> the pause function exists. Yes, <laughs> we're uh, we're here with our, our first guest of the season, um, Demos, who's been telling us about uh, the incredible work that he does and that the team at Blue Origin are doing. Um, I mean, it's it's so fascinating to to think about the fact that um, you know not just uh, run before you can crawl, but but you know figure out how we can apply these technologies to uh, you know mining and creating the necessary in situ resources on the moon for for launches from the moon before you've even launched from earth it's it's so fascinating that that was i had no idea that that was what was kind of driving um the approach wow surprising to us too i mean you know as an engineer you're just introduced say this is the rocket you're going to work on go do this and that and then eventually once you're working there for a while you start to ask well as you learn about rockets you're like this is a totally inappropriate design for an earthbound rocket to do tourism. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose this fuel? Why did you choose this engine design? And then you find out, okay, so we're trying to get double duty out of our investment. That's actually very clever. And then yeah. uh, how far away is Blue Origins um, 
blue moon lander from being ready to go. Is that well, I've got some updates for that. So, Ooh. so um, we've got a, an interesting change. When I was um, working at Blue Origin, so right now I'm not at Blue Origin anymore. I'm working with a, an aerospace company, and we can talk about that later. But um, I still stay in touch with my Blue Origin peeps. And uh, New Glenn is still scheduled to fly at the end of 2024. And that's an exciting rocket. It's huge. It's 330 feet or 100 meters tall. This rocket is only about um, 10 meters tall, or sorry, 15 meters tall for this rocket. So to just give you an idea of the scale, New Glenn would carry this as a payload to the moon if it needed to, just to give you an idea of, of the kind of capability. And fully loaded. I mean, New Glenn has the ability to launch, uh, to take about a million pounds up into space. Nothing. That's so, not um, like a Greyhound bus, for example, uh, which is a just sort of a classic analogy we use in America. But a large tourist bus could be loaded into the payload bay of New Glenn for a trip That's to the moon. Wow! Yeah, I know it. It's, it is, and and this and so the Mark One lander is still a little bit away. I would say probably look for it in about the next three years. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, some of the initial design work has been done. Um, it's not going to be on the first group of things that go to the moon. We've got the Artemis mission. We've got um, obviously Orion. And, um, and there's going to be like the trips around the moon first, just to see the moon, to say that you've been there, which is not, not bad to have on your resume. Um, <laughs> I that's what fine. NASA had to do. Everyone had to do it. You have to prove you can get exactly. there. Then prove you can come back. <laughs> but the manned missions um, on the moon are going to involve a, a number of things. And one of those is, is to evaluate what we can do about setting up an infrastructure because the whole point of the return to moon is we're going, going back to stay. And that's kind of the tagline. Um, so the, the ability to do that is going to require one deploying solar energy assets, networking communication. Um, we've got one group that's working on a railroad on the moon and that will be melting the, the lunar regolith and turning it into track. Um, we've got groups that are working on um, deployable solar panels that will, and this was actually, I think in Ars Technica, there was an article about um, honey, honeybee robotics that was going to be putting mm-hmm. a deployable solar panel on the moon. And, um, and those will be at a place um, in order to get access to full coverage and not have a long lunar night, which is 14 days, is to um, go on one of the poles. And when you're, when you're at the pole, you can deploy an antenna really tall. And it doesn't matter that the moon is spinning and you have a day or a night. You're out of that shadow. You're constantly able, you just turn, or you have a, ro- or you have a cylindrical solar panel. And you just capture energy that way. That's intense. So it's going to be a very exciting next uh, group of years. And we've got a lot going on. <laughs> But yeah, that would say yeah. the next three years. And certainly this year is going to be exciting because we're going to have a couple of missions. Now, the Peregrine lander didn't make it. It had a propulsion no. failure. And it was right. very sad. And it's the third attempt by private organizations to get to the moon. And in all three attempts, we've had failures. Um, Peregrine, however, flew on a Blue Origin-powered rocket. The Vulcan? Yes, Vulcan Centaur 
ran on two BE4 engines that were built in the factory no um, while I was watching those yeah. engines. And I, I'm, I was very excited about it because I had a hand in designing the engine controllers for those engines. And so, so, uh, and that's, and it's America's ride to space. That's what they call the BE4. The BE4 is designed to do something which was very unpopular. Uh, ULA decided to use Russian rocket engines. So they resurrected this ancient bunch of engines that were built in the sixties and seventies, the RD 180, which had been powering, uh, the, the Delta heavies and the uh, Atlas rockets up until now. And finally, they ran out of engines because this is all uh, very old-fashioned technologies built on uh, pressure regulators. I'm, it looked like um, it looked like a auto body shop's um, acetylene torch. That was what the controller looked like on the RD one hundred and eighty. And the BE four naturally has you know the the latest and greatest high tech uh, com- computational resources, if you will, sure. uh, running it. And, um, and the exciting thing is we've been able, as a company at Blue Origin, to make a huge uh, achievement. It took a long time to get that engine designed and built. Um, and, you know, when an engine like that explodes on a test stand, when you're in early stage development, it's like a small nuclear weapon going off. The, the, these engines have access to a lot of firepower. And so it's, it's kind of scary to, to keep that engine running. I mean, it's designed to generate a half, half a million pounds of thrust. So each, each. Yeah. I mean, now the engine here is no, no slouch. It's doing a hundred thousand to 130,000. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea that the Vulcan was uh, on those engines. That's fantastic. Two of them, two of them. So it gives you an idea of what we're lifting. I think it's it's really fascinating, and I'll, and I'll say something that's a little bit, uh, well, not controversial per se, but you know, I'll often have uh, friends or family members bugging me about, well, if the moon landings were real, why is it taken so long for us to to get back there? And I think that you know, besides obviously the politics and the bureaucracy, it's really fascinating to see that um, you know, once the decision was made to make this the goal for the for the space industry. It's been, let's not recreate the way that we did it last time, but let's do everything better. As you were saying, you, you know, it's forward thinking in terms of in situ creation of resources and infrastructure. It's um, making sure that the launch systems are more efficient. It, it's kind of it's kind of mind-blowing, honestly. Yeah. yeah. And um, the Apollo missions only went there for, what, uh, a day or two. And I think right. Mark Two is the Blue Origins Mark Two is supposed to be there for like thirty days. It's supposed to be able to last uh, house th- four people for like a month. I think so. I think it's a couple of weeks. Um, I gotta tell you though, wow. I I do not know <laughs> if I would if I would want to be on that rocket. So so here's why. <laughs> so take this space, put yourself in maybe. Um, so you'll need five people minimum for a mission, and here's why. You're going to have an EVA of three people on this moon surface. Then you need one, mm-hmm. one mission specialist inside the capsule handling communications to the, to the people doing the extravehicular activity. Then you'll have another mission specialist handling telemetry and communications to the Earth, and as well as to whatever rotating uh, orbiting assets you have around the moon. 
So you need a pretty big team. You need five people. The space is tiny. And the um, and part of that space is for dealing with putting your suit on and off. And so there's so imagine you're essentially living, standing up, by the way, in this for two weeks. Um, there aren't many seats. And when you lie down, you simply just have a wall that reclines a little bit. Um, you're going to have a, no, no privacy, by the way. And wet wipes are going to be your shower. Um, the toilet, it's a prison toilet. <laughs> it's right there. And right beside the toilet is a communication station. Right beside the communication station is the food station and the science station. And that's where you stand in your, in your off time when you're not doing EVAs. So it's going to take a, <laughs> that first group is going to be quite, quite heroic. I will say this, this is going to yeah. make this look like a luxury car. I, I believe the, uh, the first uh, Apollo mission, the, not a lot of people speak about it or know about it, but when they came back, um, the astronaut said, well, it's, it's gross in there because they didn't really have all the technology in place yet to handle. They didn't really foresee how well human waste can escape packaging and just meander about a cabin. Oh, yeah. So there have been a great many leaps forward in that regard, but the no privacy bit is okay. I'll, I'll I'll, I'll wait for the next one. I'll, I'll call them and tell them I'll, I'll take the next, I'll take the next one. <laughs> Apparently the, the number one thing you, you discover if you ever get a ride to the ISS is the, as soon as you open the door and you get out of your Soyuz capsule to get in is the in, intense stench of urine that hits your face. Like, 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 um, yes, as you get attacked by urine. essentially. <laughs> Right. There's a, I forget the name of the astronaut who said it, but he has a famous line about the International Space Station is, uh, uh, yesterday's coffee is tomorrow's coffee. Yeah. <laughs> the coffee you drink is made with recycled fluids and it, the, it's technically very clean and it works. And it's, that's why we're up there for 20 plus years without stopping. And we haven't even talked about all the biological effects. Um, one interesting story that Jerry Lininger wrote about in his time on Mir, where he spent, um, I think, nine months on the Mir space station, so we're going way back now, was that he would sleep in the lead-acid battery compartment, which was the um, energy storage elements for the Mir. And the reason he would do that was because the cosmic rays would r ruin his ability to fall asleep because when he would close his eyes, he would see contrails of the charged particles formed in his retina. No. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And we'll have plenty of that. Now, the moon, fortunately, is a lower radiation environment than one would, hope, one would expect. And part of that is because of its proximity to the Earth. However, once you get to Mars, all bets are off. And it's a pretty high radiation environment out there relative to the Earth. And and one thing so that think... we haven't fully discussed in in our return our, our trip to Mars. From from memory, um, so I, I think I was at a talk given by um, the CEO of Stemrad, um, the organization who they so they designed both uh, radiation suits and radiation vests for people working in um, 
certain environments that require <laughs> that protective gear on Earth, but also for astronauts. And they've done some really cool work on um, tailoring the design of, of radiation suits, I think they're called uh, AstroRad, to actually protect the more or less sensitive organs uh, on both men and women. Um, and they were also working, I think, with the Orion mission. And one of the things that I remember from uh, them mentioning was not only the suits, but to have a water storage layer that would have mm -hmm. not quite a basement, but like a storage layer underneath it. And basically oh, in absolutely. the event of a, a solar radiation event or a coronal mass ejection, they could basically retreat under this layer of water storage um, as a, a means of protection from the uh, the energetic particles. Is, is is that kind of the sort of direction the, that we're thinking? Of? In the suit or in the yeah. habitat that they're that they're in? Both, actually. But yeah, the suit <laughs> would be heavy, but the habitat would use its stored water as shielding. Oh, yeah. okay, cool. So now same approach. that. That doesn't work for everything. Like it doesn't work as well for photons, but it works extremely well for neutrons. So, yeah. uh, for example, you can stand over an operating nuclear reactor running at a hundred percent power with just a foot of water between you and the core, and you would not notice a single bit of additional radiation above background. So, water is amazing in terms of protecting you from from those from those situations and. Because it's also a resource that you're going to want to carry with you anyway, um, it's it gets double duty. It's one of the reasons the planet Earth is so great. <laughs> we need to take care of the planet. It's a pretty nice planet. I, I like it. Yeah, that's where all the tacos are. Yeah, that we know of. That we know. That of. we know of. Pulled pork tacos. <laughs> <laughs> pork you mentioned that oh, Mars is a, a, a high radiation environment. Is it, but it has an atmosphere. Does it make it? Would that would the moon be more? Uh, it does more radiation environment than Mars. I think so. The reason the moon so the moon is essentially protected by this this magnetic shadow of the Earth. So the sun, the sun, Got the it. Earth, and the moon create sort of this 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 twin that because of its um, interactions, gravitational and magnetic you get a, a little bit of benefit. There is no benefit from the atmosphere on Mars. And so even the Earth gets, the Earth gets bombarded by cosmic rays continuously. And some of those cosmic rays make it to the Earth's surface. But um, it's, and in fact, it's an, a big enough issue that aircraft that fly above 36,000 feet have to be radiation rated for their avionics. Um, that is not the case for terrestrial grade um, avionics. So, and so when, when we talk about that, for example, we say, you know, a trip across the Atlantic is equivalent to 50 chest x-rays, just to give you an idea of how much radiation you get. And it's not really like you're going that high up. You're only going up to 36,000 feet, which is also the height roughly of Mount Everest. But it just gives you an idea of how important the atmosphere is and water, right? Because that's what we have a lot of water in our atmosphere. And that's part of that protective layer. That's insane. What? <laughs> That's a lot of X-rays just flying across the Atlantic. I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering, cost-wise, with medical insurance these days, which is cheaper, flying across the Atlantic or getting fifty chest X-rays? 
True. But when you think about the um, ability of humans to recover from radiation, it's actually quite, quite amazing. Um, mm-hmm. it, that doesn't mean that we don't have long-term damage due to it. Radiation doesn't damage DNA directly. Radiation actually causes oxidation to occur. Like, um, and that's why we take antioxidants um, to help reduce, to reverse the effects of oxidation. And it's the oxidized, um, uh, the oxidized material inside the cell that attack the DNA, not the radiation itself, which is something um, that a lot of people don't realize. What? I just learned how radiation, I'm so happy right now. I just learned how radiation works. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I'm, I have a, a question kind of out of left field. I mean, you're clearly um, a really brilliant person and you have this like deep understanding of science and, and engineering and you've worked both on electronic components and kind of more uh, oil and grease type engineering projects as well. How... I mean, you, you mentioned that you were at uh, Virginia Polytech, but I'm curious, do you, do you look at something in how you got to where you're at today and say, wow, that was not how people normally do it? Like, was this something non-traditional in your path to get here? Or do you think you kind of did things by the book? I think whenever you're a consultant and you're open to new ideas, you're sort of closing the, the typical career book. Because it's it's very it's very easy to sort of just take a job out of school and stick with that job and then maybe stay with that job for five years and find a new job and stay with that job for five years, and that's great. And jobs generally and and jobs generally will will steer you in the direction they need you because you're an asset. Um, the instant you take yourself out of that, um, that's when you're you go from being an asset to being a, a free agent. And so, I mean, I, I, cho- I looked to find stuff that I enjoyed to do. And, and, and one of the things you learned, like I got my PhD in electrical engineering. I was always told, don't do it unless you really love it, because if you don't love it, you're not going to survive it. And, and I will say this, I love, for example, solar power, uh, but there's something called the solar roller coaster if you're in the business. And the roller coaster is this emotional change that occurs um, through the ups and downs of the business, and and alternative energy has those. Um, I think right now everyone's thinking about climate differently, especially since twenty twenty three was such a such a a, a record busting year, um, and the climate changes will will be with us for a very long time. It's certainly just the effects of twenty twenty three, and we we are only starting twenty twenty four. Who knows what surprises we have in store? But um, those, if you, if you put yourself in, in the areas of research that you're excited about and you're passionate about, I think, I mean, I don't know how to answer the question about like what, like unexpected, I guess for me, I just tried to make my own path. So that should be my answer. I just tried to make my own path and I didn't just work for companies. I said, forget it, I'm doing my own thing. That's scary because you know, people have to, you have to have some sort of credibility. Um, there are things like you can apply for various grants that government's giving out money to do research. Um, you can, you can just call up. I mean, if you're young and you're an engineer, you're lucky, right? Because you've got two things going for you. You're trainable 
that you can do stuff uh, on a moment's notice. Maybe maybe you haven't had time to start a family yet, so you can have crazy hours. Um, maybe you just go on Hackaday and and build crazy stuff and and show it off on the website, and people kind of get interested in what you do. And maybe your interest is in building airplane motors, and now all of a sudden, an electric airplane company is like, "Hey, would you like to work on our electric airplane?" And then all of a sudden you have a consulting job with an electric airplane company like I have right now. So, um, and so that's, that's what's going on is, is you, you, you pick a hat, you pick something, you let people know about it. And then all of a sudden you got more work than you know what to do with. Fantastic. I, I like that. And yeah, I, I like what you said about kind of forging your own path. I think that was the main reason I asked the question because I know that a lot of people tend to get very worked up about, you know, not ticking the right boxes of a traditional path and, um, and stressing out about that sort of thing. And so I'm glad you said what you said. Um, Benjamin, was there, was there something else you, you wanted to ask before we wrap things up? Um, <clears throat> I do have one kind of question I'd like to ask. It's about um, the public, the public perception of, a manned mission back to the moon. We've already had um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins make the first landing on the moon and come back. And there was the ticker tape parade and they were international celebrities for years. And um, we have since done it a few more times and nobody's gone back. The uh, conspiracy theorists abound because of it. And, um, uh, do you think that sending people back to the moon and, oh, God willing, back home again yeah. <laughs> is going to be uh, answered with as much fanfare? Or is it just going to be like, uh, all right, well, yeah, we went to the moon before, big deal. I'm hoping for the first. I hope they come back to just celebrity status. Do you think that would be a big thing? I think it comes to uh, the innate human need for um, pushing ourselves to the limit, whether it's the Olympics or scientific achievement um, or, or literary. Um, there's just the ability to wow each other and to do something special is um, is is a very deep deeply satisfying human part of our existence, the ability to show off that we've been able to achieve something. Um, as far as what the world needs now, it's probably not a lot of money and energy used to spend to go to the moon. We, we should invest it in better political solutions, uh, better scientific solutions to help climate change, um, maybe to improve access to clean drinking water, and some of the issues that will occur as our climate uh, makes those things more difficult. Um, and, 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 you know, for example, I'm, I'm very excited about a technology that's going to space that, frankly, I think will be used on the Earth. And here's an example, right? The, the Apollo missions were all about the technologies that we developed to go to the moon made our life on Earth better. And it's true. We did not have worldwide uh, radio and signaling networks um, until Apollo. Apollo invented the internet. 
how could you have the ability to track a space capsule orbiting the Earth? In, in the 1950s, we were doing this with the Mercury and Gemini missions, and we were able to establish continuous links, moving data around the world in a time when you know, people just owning a radio was a novelty. And that was something the Apollo program brought, and no one would have even imagined what, how the technologies have changed us now. And those were inspired by and accelerated by going to the moon then. The kind of technological challenges we're going to have on the moon are amazing. And I think something like plasma waste gasification, where we take the trash we create and we put it into a reactor that's at the temperature of the sun's surface, and we turn that trash, all those broken up bottle bits, into hydrogen gas. Done. That. We do it right. We put it on our earth, and all of a sudden we turn our waste into clean energy. That's the kind of innovation I'm hoping that we're going to get by going to the moon. Wow. That sounds insanely inspiring and hopeful. I love that. Look at Kavi, just dreaming. Aww. Oh, I'm just thinking I'm just thinking <laughs> of how like how similar what you described is to the um the fusion engine on the DeLorean in the movie Back to the Future. Which is basically like chuck in the garbage and use it to power. Like it's in a sci-fi sense, we have known that this is the solution for decades. Um, mm-hmm. It's just so great to see that it's it's tangible. It's right around the corner, and um, and as you said, you know, we're we're finding ways to solve these problems in space that will in turn solve a lot of problems for us here on Earth. Um, amazing! It's really great. Love it. Well, this was great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank um, you. And joy. Oh, dude, Thank you're coming you. back, whether you know it or not. It's happening. I'm looking you're forward to back. it. We've got so much to talk about. <laughs> so I can talk I know, to you about really electric good. vehicle charging standards, <laughs> uh, hybrid electric aircraft that uh, take off on 150 feet of runway. Oh God, that would be. I, I would. Yeah, we need to have you back. This has already been our longest episode yet, and yes. we can do another two hours um, easily just on this. Gosh, wow! Um, if people want to find you online um, to to I don't know follow the things that you're posting or read things that you've written or perhaps uh, listen to any podcast that you might recommend, uh, where where can folks find you? Well, Luxide Podcast or Arevnamedia.com is um, the website that my wife and I um, have, which provides all of the direct links to the posts that we've done. I, I um, have lately not been blogging or posting as much as others. Um, for me, creating the uh, podcast, the Luxide Podcast, has been sort of my my contribution but um i would say that listen to the podcast we we do have a couple of episodes where we talk about rockets i think this for me this has been the most fun and the most um I, I, it's great to geek out with people who love rockets and and um and you'll hear a little bit of that on the Luxi podcast but i think you guys it's going to be it's going to be even at the next level so so i'm really Aww. excited this is this is kind of so so i'd say go there um, I'm on LinkedIn. You can friend me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I, I don't post that much. I, it's embarrassing. Um, 
but um, but I have been uh, posting lately on um, uh, about my exciting work with Electra Arrow. So um, follow me as as we um, develop the next generation of hybrid electric short takeoff aircraft. Done. Wow. Fantastic. Um, cool. For uh, folks listening at home who want to uh, find Benjamin, where can uh, the good folks find you, Benjamin? As always, everybody on the internet, just follow Science Actually, uh, uh, primarily on Facebook. But you can also find us on Twitter, Mastodon, Hive, Instagram, Threads, TikTok, LinkedIn. I just post there every single day. That's Don't tell great. anyone it's copy and paste. Don't tell anyone it's copy and paste. These guys original are content superheroes. Social media. How about you, Cobbs? Covey? Uh, you can you can find me on all the good and all the bad social media platforms at Fun Fact Science. Um, I think the only one you didn't mention was Blue Sky, where the sky. Oh is yeah, blue I'm there too. No, too late. I claimed it. It's mine. Uh, <laughs> blue Sky belongs. But to yes. <laughs> You can find us on all the aforementioned social medias, um, have a listen to old episodes uh, and new episodes as they come out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And don't forget to check out Luxi as well. Um, Absolutely. Thank you again, Demos, for being with us. And we will definitely have you back for another episode. Ah, so excited. All ah, right, guys. Thank you very get much. Ready to be wowed. Oh, fantastic! We'll see you guys next time on the next episode of Science Actually Presents: The Nerd and the Scientist. See ya! Yeah. Whoa, well, you've listened to an episode of The Nerd and the Scientist, and half an hour of your life will now be forever spent hearing what Cavi and Benjamin think is funny. But fear not, as there are other timelines in other universes where you didn't listen to them, so you should be just fine.